Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Shadowfax, Lord of Horses. And together we will be discussing the funny side of psychology. Uh, so, Shadowfax, some way of talking about your main so I can talk about myself instead. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was unconscious setting up for a later belabored segue. Yeah, well, you know, we're just so into this now. We came back so, from the third dimension and we've learned so very, very much. <laughs> we are we are in a complete and utter flow state right now. New York state, to be specific. Anyway, uh, how's things? It feels like a long time since we last spoke. Yeah. Such great things are afoot in um, Clarabellonia. <laughs> uh yeah so i i I suppose this like we're we're ruining our rigid structure ben um like you're (laughs) taking away the thing i've done this fortnight but um you're ruining my rigid structure i'm sorry i've been listening to a lot of podtoid recently right well it's fine it's fine i saw i saw our mutual friend alexandra at the um the weekend um Uh aha And Hi, I Alexandra. definitely had a whole complicated joke about having sublimated desires towards redheaded women purely on the basis ah. of unresolved sexual tension with you. So <laughs> I suppose now we're even. <laughs> Fair enough. It was a really elaborate joke for you to not be there. I don't know why I invested that much effort in that joke. <laughs> I'm sure I was there in spirit. Well, yeah, sort of. Um <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, thinking of um, thinking of uh, Alexandra, she gave us a sort of feedback. on No, the... no. What? Rigid structure. Thinking of Alexandra, who is one of our friends. This week's Demi episode contains studies on friends. Yes, including sexual tension. Now, we never had sexual tension with Alexandra, but we may have helped generate <laughs> some. <even> once. <laughs> we may have helped generate some between her and other people for our own amusement. I- imaginary sexual tension between her and other people, which then yeah. manifested in the w- real world. We're like, like imagineers. Beyond Inception, right? <laughs> Beyond Inception, because then it comes into reality. <laughs> Out of the dream. Um, no, I was going to say, um, but she, she was talking about how being a happily married woman she likes to live vicariously through her friends who are serially monogamous uh, just because she feels like her life has been not especially exciting in that way um, that she still wouldn't swap it because she likes her husband funnily enough but <laughs> yeah that's I was like no you that, never understood that way one around. <laughs> um, yeah definitely I absolutely agree uh, but, but yeah I can I can see the desire to sort of yeah, it's it's I get that it's like when it's like time. when you have children and you uh, place undue pressure on them in uh, in order to f- uh, encourage them to do the things that you never got to do or f- opportunities that you felt you missed when you were younger. So you can live vicariously through their experiences. Yeah, except that they're not really at an age for children. So you do it through your friends instead. Also, if you and vicariously live through your friends' romance, so you yeah, through your children's serially monogamous relationships. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> That's super weird. I mean, I I would never expect Alexandra and her husband to have uh, what might be called the a standard family, but I'm not sure it would stretch you to know, those. You should you should go you should go see her. They have a lovely flat that's like it looks really posh, but mostly that's because of IKEA. Um, and uh, yeah, she seems like distressingly close to a responsible adult. 
distressingly Ugh. close. That's that. Uh, uh, oh gosh, that's. Horrible. I fear any of our friends. I've I've seen her try to carry a large picture frame over a windy bridge. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't seem safe for the community at large. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, so she said of the set of screenshots I took from our video episode that this looks unmissable indeed. So that would go on a poster if we had posters. <laughs> yeah, we haven't we haven't transcended to the visual medium to such an extent that we have flyers yet yet <laughs> you know have audio business cards i really I want to record myself an audio business card i think that you should do that just like you i guess you wouldn't exactly give it out maybe if you know those t-shirts just send people mp3s that play like well no because it has to be more sort of viral and in your face like advertising is these days so you need it to like write a virus that like embeds itself into the Muzak players in shopping centers and just occasionally plays like white noise to put everyone in the shopping center into a sort of hallucinogenic trance then plays like a, a random snippet of our our conversations like for example what you said to me just before we started recording <laughs> I don't which was remember. I quote write that sentence down and put it in my Skype hole end quote <laughs> And then that's how podcasting is done, Ben. (laughs) Exactly through subliminal messaging and sexual tension. Yeah, the two pillars of modern podcasting. Anyway, what were we talking about? Um, We were talking about um, feedback. Do you have any feedback from people who are not our not friends, but are not our like real life friends who forged a friendship through us via not the podcast? If that makes any Uh, sense quite possibly one of those things i do have some feedback uh, from the wordpress page on the um exciting three three-dimensional episode that we did um yeah from uh peter uh who wants to know why you're so much blurrier than me i did answer uh, on the wordpress but he gives options of tim needing a better webcam better internet or the fact that he was watching it on a 50-inch television which fe- that's probably the thing that makes me feel like we've made it the most more so than getting haters more so than getting like vaguely respectable download numbers but the fact that someone is watching us on a television yeah it does we're make basically me feel the like... same as the queen oh right okay i was gonna say we're like a panel show clearly my ambitions are lower than yours <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh nah. anyway uh t- so yeah it, it is as Tim pointed out kind of all of those, but I would argue that it, at the time it was also still due to the fact that Tim is a naturally fun, fuzzier individual. Uh, although it's no how we longer, interact with reality, as we shall soon find out. Yeah, you're like slightly, your whole being is slightly out of phase. <laughs> Look, I'm dyspraxic. That's what happens. Like a blink dog. <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of Dungeons and Dragons and psychology, actually. I was listening to an episode of Podtoid, which I've been doing a lot recently, which is probably bad for many things. Um, and they opened the show. One of the the pro- producers, uh, talent, I guess, podcasters. Voice machine that, humans. Voice machine humans on Podtoid works in uh, primary mental health care, like unto yourself. I think of you for the minuscule uh, cross-section of the Venn diagram of our listeners who listen to both this and Podtoid, which is a, a segment of the Venn diagram which should increase 
uh, I think of myself as the Jim Sterling and you as the Jonathan Holmes in this relationship, or at least I do now, which bodes ill for you. Um, yeah, you describe. <laughs> listen to you describing the show recently as a media of the fortnight, and yeah, I don't want to be that guy in that context. <laughs> um, yeah, well, they maybe opened I do, with a. Dis- I don't want to admit they, it. They start. They open the show by talking about the DSM four or possibly the DSM-5, and uh, Jim Sterling was saying how he likes to read through the DSM-5 and try and choose which ones he wants. It's like, you know, to to optimise his, to make him the most interesting person without being too crazy. Um, and then he started talking about, like, maybe... It's horrible, multi- I'm trying to think of it. He was talking about, like, maybe multiclassing between narcissistic personality and antisocial personality disorder. And, oh, come on. You know, come on. Keeping Let's all, talk about keeping the all the feats with... from narcissism and then adding in some from the, the other The willingness of the categorization of personality disorders means you can do that. Psychopathy exists within antisocial personality, but definitely has narcissistic traits. So... Yeah, yeah, and there's definitely some prestige classes in there and stuff like that. So I just I really like liked the whole um, yeah DSM four as player's handbook. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of horrifying, but at least let's say it's a satire of the DSM four and its categorization system rather than yes. mental health. You know, that's what uh, it is. Let's say that. Um, so that that was a tangent. The other piece of feedback we got uh, on the WordPress was from Charles. Uh, who was very pleased to hear that you named uh, your plushy neuron Ramachandran. What uh, did you name yours? I forget. Uh, I feel like mine was Buckley. Okay, right. Yeah, the and, great heroes. Um, and Mir- well, Mira's, was... Mira's was Spiny. I can't remember. Oh, Nicky's was Brian, which is how a dyslexic person spells brain, but also a name. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was good. Uh, he's very jealous of the fact that Much Do About Nothing is not coming to Saskatchewan uh that he downloaded uh, the empire podcast episode that i mentioned which is kind of awesome uh and claims that he he got into psychology for similar reasons to you uh and then in the following sentence men- mentions hannibal lecter so i feel i'm really sorry slash pleased for his students given my upcoming job i'm really trying to avoid the whole hannibal <laughs> lecter will graham dynamic the whole <laughs> oh have you started watching uh lecter? no no uh, Hannibal, rather. You should. It's. It, I watched the final episode. Uh, I hear the finale it. is dramatic, but it is. But it's exactly. It's dramatic in exactly the way that I thought it would be. But that doesn't diminish from it because there were only a. F- Once you knew that they were coming back for a, a second season, there were only a finite number of ways that it could end. Yeah. Without uh, like going way crazy, which would have been cool. Like everybody dies and it's all just a figment what show was i watching recently where i was like and then the twist is it turns out they're all magic and it's like a show where that really shouldn't happen i can't even (laughs) remember which show it was (laughs) no they're all fixed and friends like you know how in the end oh i was gonna say you know how in the end of lost x right so spoiler warnings for lost but maybe forget i was talking about lost it turns out at the end of Friends that um, Sartre was right about hell and Chandler has been in hell the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's sort of... You see, yeah, that's, that's like, that should be a game that we should play, is add one finale detail, like a shock finale ending, like the Battlestar Galactic ending or the... Um, yeah, you're allowed, you're allowed that nevertheless fits with the canon of the show. You're allowed 30 seconds and a single shot to completely <laughs> change the meaning of the show. So that one is uh, like 
so yeah like the end of being human or something like that um, yeah chandler chandler in like a white void <laughs> being tormented by um uh oh god what's it? tom waits is the devil <laughs> tom waits is a good devil as it were he's a good bad <laughs> devil <laughs> Uh, yeah so that uh, thanks for that feedback Charles and Peter and, and Alexandra and she'll listen to this eventually as with everyone we know listening but behind is <laughs> is inevitable sorry I just That's said so. a number of uh, uh, synonyms for posterior I apologise for this outburst censor it Anyway, <laughs> uh, what have you done this week, Tim? Because yours is much more exciting. We've both undergone physical changes this week. That's something that's happened. But yours are, are you now that like sexy ginger werewolf that all of the fans were hoping for? Uh, let's say yes. Well, it's not a video episode, so you can say yes if you want. <laughs> right, good, excellent. Uh, so, yeah, I had my first haircut in a decade. I may have mentioned that this was coming in the previous episode. Did you have it in a hairdresser's? Uh, yes. Well, like a professional hairdresser's who happens to do it from home, but yes. They would need to be professional with your hair. More, more kind of like... Yeah, I was wondering... Did you watch the video? Did you watch the video? I I watched as much as I could... My my sanity could stand. My kind of self-awareness could stand of me watching a video of my friend having his hair cut. Um, it's pretty weird right yeah it's quite weird i mean like props to that hairdresser man yeah like yeah uh, she's my mother's hairdresser Um, i mean the the change between before and after is astonishing and looks really good like yeah i've got some i I am impressed my my hair is a bit curlier today but i've got some serum to help tame it (laughs) make it sound like the stuff that bane gets injected (laughs) well i was thinking of captain america uh, <laughs> I, I can't think I've I've used up all of my um, you know you look more like ha- Captain America bent. now than you did before yeah I look more like what Captain America yeah I've had comparisons to James McAvoy um, and Andy Serkis um, obviously I'm really rolling with the, <laughs> the James <laughs> McAvoy ones not because Andy Serkis isn't good looking or but I don't think he looks like me um, but when when you say Andy Circus, the first thing you think of is my precious. Yeah, exactly. Than, well, I say, think of him, a handsome man. Um, you know, I think of him as doing that acting, but in the green bobble suit. <laughs> so not with the computer <laughs> animation. When I think of Andy Circus, that's what I picture. You know. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 I mean, how was it? What was the experience like of? having such an integral part of your being not as weird as i would i thought it was going to be you know like the weird thing is when people like i'm used to people staring at me but now it's like the shock that people get because i've kind of forgotten even though it was only yesterday you know like service users parents and stuff Mm. it's just like eyes away now i'm like oh no what's wrong oh wait yeah who is this handsome man oh god Uh, (laughs) i liked my husband it wasn't like like losing a thousand tiny curly limbs then no i don't feel like my consciousness has lost all of that extension and projection into like other space because there was always there was always the like it's not a short 
it was some kind of mass storage device for all your yeah your some kind of cthuloid being you know your weird ability theory. to just absorb pop culture facts like the intellectual equivalent of samson i've heard i've heard all of it and i've not found sure yet um yeah. i run my hands through it quite like a 50s greaser more than i really should given my level of well i don't know i think i am vain but only as an extension of egotism right Right, yeah. It's like, well, I think I'm brilliant, therefore I must look good as well. Which is so <laughs> weird and messed up and wrong. Oh, you do. Um, differently good. Differently good. Uh, you so have, You have to say that stuff, but you probably shouldn't, because we've been talking about the whole, you know, <laughs> the weird dynamic of that. Yeah, I, I mean, the, yeah. The, the, uh, closing, what was it? Shutting the door after you've shot the horse in the other foot or something like that there was a really good um shot the horse with a bolt gun yeah or bolting the horse after the door has shot itself or something i don't know really? yeah shutting the door shutting the door after sounds the horse. like a zoltzmanism yeah yes actually that might have been it may well have been it cool so yeah haircuts crazy times huh yeah what what have you done to be physically transformed well not as much either as you or as I would necessarily like, but I have managed in the last like seven or eight days, I have managed to go to the gym, all of them bar two, which Who is are you? the most consi- that I've been able to consistently go to the gym in my life. Uh, and sh- shows no evidence of slowing, which frightens and concerns me both in and of itself. And also because I'm, f- concerned that if i try and work out why this is suddenly happening i'll it'll, i'll jinx it and it'll stop um, you, don't, you never want to like be too self-reflective because it's only going to reveal something that you've kind of repressed it's like oh wait that's why i'm doing this normal behavior more than often <laughs> it's horrifying yeah i mean it's it's good i think that like being healthy is a good thing i suppose technically um, I hear that. Uh, yeah, I, uh, people always told me, um, and it's it's weird. So, like the last weekend as well, uh, we I've been in work. I've been contributing to a book chapter, which has been very exciting. And as we all know, uh, book chapters means that it's definitely true. Yeah, exactly. And this is like a, a manual for use by other people. So, gosh. Yeah, it's, it's Which really dull. Am I ever going to uh, come across this so, in my career? Social psychologists. Okay. Um, what what does it tell you how to do? Does it tell you how to create psych- groups that now have conflict where they never did before? It tells you how to do social psychology. It's it's like a, uh, a handbook of measurement methods. So like how... Uh, what questionnaire... If you want to measure anxiety in social psychology, what questionnaire measures should you use based on a bunch of, like, statistical... T- I very should have used a book dry. like for my research. Um, but anyway, it's been exciting for me because writing a book chapter and it's been with a lot of people who are really cool to work with and it's, like, contributing to a real academic thing. And this weekend has been crunch time for that. It was due in on Monday, so there was a lot of, like, flying back and forth and desperate desperate edits and stuff like that. And having just started going to the gym, and I, I found myself feeling, like, really kind of... This whole weekend, the last few days, been feeling, like, really sort of brain-switched on, intellectually stimulated and fulfilled and all this kind of stuff. Wow. Which, 
everyone always says is like, yeah, do exercise. You'll feel like perkier and better and just more awake and up for work and stuff. And you're always like, yeah, sure, but I could just have another relentless. But yeah, it, maybe it's maybe maybe it's a real thing. Who knows? Maybe I'm just maybe I've caught some kind of strange bacterial parasite which is making me go to the gym lots and gradually taking over my brain. Who knows? Well, there's it those, could those be cat any parasites, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. Or the like the the, it's the a, you know parasites that are fungus. Maybe oh, right, like yeah. But the, the, the brain fungus can't affect us. The cat parasites do affect us. Um, well, that you know of. I mean, if The Last of Us tells us anything, then the fungus probably will at some point and turn us all into, uh, like, mushroom zombies. Yeah. If at, any point, if at any point I find myself climbing a very tall grass stalk and presenting myself to passing birds, <laughs> then I will, I will know that it has gone too far and the yeah. symbiotic relationship has broken down. Yeah, um, but you know, I'm just imagining like rowing machine parasites. They just make the rowing machine smell nicer and feel nicer, and that's what the cat parasite does. Like. They're, they're pretty much there must be something like that. It's the only way to explain rowing. Well, I mean, the reality like... is endogenous morphine. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> it's even more insidious because your body had all of these structures already it's... there. Rain heroin, hooray! Oh. Uh, why do you cool. think I don't trust gyms? No, the worrying thing is I can see myself like going and doing like an exercise bike thing or a treadmill with a podcast on. And my self-image was kind of wrecked when I realized, hey, I could actually do that. I've just done 20 minutes on a bike at work to keep, you know, encouraging someone next to me. I feel OK. I do not yeah. feel ill. What so is this? Is, my self-concept is, is big. Oh, it's it's about finding the the stuff that works for you. Like I started off doing the treadmill, and I quite like the treadmill, but it it hurts. Like it's a very kind of percussive thing. Whereas now on the bike, I've worked out that the optimal pattern is twenty minutes of podcast. So I've right. been listening, as I said, to a lot of Podtoid in a slightly um, diminished mental state, where I'm probably slightly more kind of impressionable, which is bad. Um, and then ten minutes of just the gym playlist which is composed entirely of like viking metal and metallica because right. there it's it's brilliant to just feel the analgesic effect of music happening to you as just being able to see the numbers increase and feeling you know you get faster and it hurts less the moment the song comes on yeah it's crazy uh so yeah it's it's been working it's been working kind of well um so that's that's what i've been doing a lot this week uh yeah pretty pretty dull we <laughs> that's brilliant isn't it it's supposed to be exciting things that happen to us you had a haircut i went to the gym yeah but i had my first for haircut us, in years <laughs> yeah for us that's crazy if it had been like you know i discovered like some niche role-playing game thing and spent like stayed up for 24 hours doing it and you shut yourself in a darkened room and wrote like a Five thousand word epic poem. Yeah, in, I'm really yeah, trying that would be to kind of standard. I'm really trying to come up with a cyberpunk concept. Is it the terrible thing where you reach a certain stage in a novel where you're like, right, what am I writing next? It's like Tim, you're just over halfway through your novel. Come on. <laughs> um, but I'm. We can talk about that afterwards because I want you to do world building for a game. So. Uh, oh right. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's talk about that later.
<laughs> thinking of like imaginary worlds, Media of the Fortnite. Hooray. I haven't put down any timings for this episode. <laughs> why, why, why? Evenings are so confusing. And this is so when we're going to be recording in the future when I have yep. like real jobs. Ah! Um, so, yeah, my, my Media of the Fortnite is a BBC sort of three sort of iPlayer exclusive um, BBC pie. pie. Um, as part of the comedy feeds um, strand, and I haven't watched any of the others yet, but I watched this one because it is a TV version of a radio show I really like. It's the TV version of Social Club FM, and it's called The Committee Meeting. And I, in fact, promised one of the four or five stars of the show that I would <laughs> feature it on a podcast, and we had a little joke about that's exactly how the BBC decides its commissioning, is podcast features. <laughs> if only, because, you know... If I had the power to decide what BBC comedies got commissioned, my goodness. Well, like, we wouldn't be on all the time, but we'd be a bit like David Mitchell, on more times than is strictly healthy on the BBC. <laughs> For either the BBC or us. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, anyway. And, you know, your, your, your partner could have a spin-off quiz show on BBC4. Do you think she would like that? <laughs> Yeah, it's not actually a really spin-off. Would. It's a spin-off from their personalities, I suppose. Be, I think I think it would for her it would be more like sort of um what is that show Amer- is American Ninja? It's like one of these uh like like assault course type things. Okay, I, think that, I don't that know. That would appeal to her maybe. Right. But maybe with quiz elements in it. <laughs> yeah, you know, like The Big Break, but instead of snooker, ninja. Yeah. Like um, hole in the wall cross only connect (laughs) oh yeah okay um so yeah the committee meeting is a really funny half hour tv show it's got chris corcoran the welsh comedian as the chairman of the club ellis james as both the caretaker of the club who is also the um, leader of the international league of welsh marxists and um (laughs) his brother is the um rival conservative club um uh, caretaker and has a brilliant bit where he does appear into how great the conservative club is to the tune of doctor who while colin baker is there as himself um, which is kind <laughs> of brilliant and uh, they also have ellis james playing steve news uh, the nephew of rex jones um who is probably my all-time favorite character in the uh, tv show and the radio series as this ridiculous kind of teenage parody who is nevertheless the newsreader and is constantly just telling stories about the inappropriate things that his school friends have gotten up to so <laughs> it's funny they're all charming the cast um really seem to be loving what they're doing and trying to make each other laugh and still being able to do so so they're not kind of jaded it Nadja Kamal being the other person who I promised I would talk about on the show she plays the secretary of the club who's doing these increasingly like hysterically emotional minutes um (laughs) to do with her kind of deep obsession with the club chairman so yeah it's a really funny show and you should watch it on iPlayer so that is my media of the fortnight I like I like the idea of uh, minutes or kind of notes on any kind of meeting situation that give a more of an insight than they strictly should into the dark recesses of the soul of the note taker. I got yeah, in, I got in trouble slash praise <laughs> for the uh, notes that I took when I was running practical classes this term with uh, a colleague, and on the sessions where the colleague was presenting, I was taking notes and got in trouble for writing things like. Angelica knows all the things in reference to a quite, n- not exactly know it all, but very kind right. of 
switched on and answering lots of questions student in the class who, you know, we asked, like, define contact or something and then, like, just gave a textbook definition verbatim right. type thing. And uh, she she told me that she really liked the notes and then someone else told me that she re- that she had said she'd really hated them. So I don't quite know where. where she not only yes. knows all the things, but she can hold all of the paradoxes in her mind. She is cognitive dissonance woman. Da, 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 da. That would be quite a useful power. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that would manifest. You could be like, you could run faster than a speeding bullet whilst like simultaneously i don't know no because that's just that's just like heisenberg principle man or something is that right is that the right thing i don't know it's quantum it, yeah. it's all it's all quantum to me uh yeah cognitive distance man that's one to add to the list to work out what his power would actually be or woman in fact yeah 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 well you don't cool. know until you observe <laughs> Uh, my media of the week, not. he said, moving swiftly on, yeah. uh, is a game, as is rapidly becoming the trend, it is a game called Rogue Legacy. Uh, and it is uh, very cheap. It is an indie game. Uh, so do you, if I so if I said a roguelike, would you know what a roguelike was, Tim? Uh, yes, would like- I would. It's like Binding of Isaac is a good modern example of a roguelike. Yeah, or so roguelikes are these games. Anything that really annoys me, because I like levelling up and earning things and money and... Uh, yeah. yeah. So they're called like a hundred hours of Binding of Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sub-genre of uh, games called roguelikes because they are like the classic version game called Rogue. And the idea is it's kind of like some f- version of dungeon exploration uh, you kind of find items, fight monsters, level up, explore. But the key components of them are permadeath and extreme difficulty, uh, usually. So uh, when your character dies, it dies for good and you have to start all over again. Often they have like random generation of the encounters or areas that you're in. And yeah, they traditionally are balls hard. Um, so Rogue Legacy is a new one. It is a like a, a 2D platformer, like Metroidvania style game. So you're like jumping on platforms and dodging, like swinging traps and slashing and firing magic at people. And the legacy part of the title comes from the fact that every time you're, you die, your character's offspring is your next character. So you end up and, and when you start the game, you choose from like one of three children Right. which have different like randomly generated traits and abilities and their different classes, um, which are sort this of semi cool. semi inherited It is really cool. Because that's so, the thing is I think the thing that annoys me most about roguelikes is the lack of legacy. So putting in some legacy yeah. while having the permadeath sounds great. So just it, give it like a it romance a, of the three kingdoms setting and I'm sold. <laughs> it has, it has a lot of legacy. So you're the, the cool thing is that when you choose your characters, it, it shows you your lineage going all the way back, which if you play it for a long time will probably end up being hundreds of relatives because the average runtime spans from anywhere from like a couple of minutes to five seconds. Right. uh, Depending on how well you do and how difficult the randomly generated rooms are. Uh, But the traits for the characters are brilliant because as well as randomly giving you a class you know, like paladin or rogue or knight or something, and a one basic spell, which would be like 
I don't know, throw a dagger at someone or a fireball or something. They, you also have traits which are of questionable or in some cases complete lack of utility. Right. So things like gigantism is a good one. That makes you big. That makes you difficult to knock back. That's quite good. Um, nostalgia makes the entire game in sepia. <laughs> uh, and colorblind puts everything in black and white. Uh, there's t- you can have Tourette's, which just means that you shout bleep every time you know you attack or get hit. Uh, you can have like flatulence or dwarfism, uh, all sorts of things like sort of uh, nega traits, if you like, uh, on some of the characters. And you get to pick because you get these three offspring each time you start a new yeah. round you get to try and pick the one with like the optimal configuration what happens uh, to the other offspring do they get to live a non-adventuring life i guess so it, it's never really stated what happens to them um and then it also which might appeal to you has a has a permanent kind of upgrade system so you get access you you have like uh uh you spend the gold that you collect in your run to unlock kind of upgrades for your tower which it can be things, you know, like more strength or more health or access okay. to classes. And you can unlock different equipment, which all your, like, they're kind of heirloom items so that all your offspring then have that piece of armor or whatever. So it does have that progression combined with the permadeath. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really neat idea. It's, it, it's absolutely got that just one more run, just one more run thing going for it. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. So it's very easy to think as, and it's only $15 on their website and there is a demo. So go check out roguelegacy.com. It's awesome. Excellent. Do that. <laughs> so, um, family, friends, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've really taken the whole segue thing relatively unseriously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> why do you think we're here? Um, so, yeah, there's some psychology from the past coming up. Not and yet. We will see you in Not the yet. future. Not yet. Now. Let's cheer ourselves up by talking about sexual attraction. Um, so Halatsis and Christakis um, want to talk to us uh, about um, the confusion between opposite sex friendships and romantic relationships and the lines between them and the blurring of those lines. Um, And so they start in this article by addressing the issue of society's opinion of male-female friendships and the evolution of their presence in our lives. So in the 50s, there was a negligible percentage of... Uh, What? Don't! No! (laughs) Negligible. You you thought you got away with it, didn't you? I really did. And then I heard like a strange brief silence um so yeah there was a negligible negligible negligees um in the 50s there were more negligent penis what <laughs> by the late 80s and early 90s 40 percent of men and 30 percent of women had a cross-section as a lived reality presumably leaving the remainder to experience it as a virtual reality some even have more than one amazing People have found it gives them a greater insight into the other gender and gives men access to emotional intimacy and women access <laughs> they wouldn't to otherwise have. Yes, exactly. To activities and communication. So, OK, this oh, wow. is still <laughs> chock full of stereotypes, but it's relatively positive. It, like, they, if they just said, 
more or different activities and communication or more and different emotional closeness. But, like, well, I think they say that male male re- relationships don't tend to be high on the emotional closeness, the intimacy in terms of shared secrets and stuff. But, you know. But, I mean, like, so this is the problem. I, I, I Not the problem, but the, the philosophical issue I have with this stuff. And it slightly relates to what we were talking before about kind of gender, gender and sex yeah. labels or whatever. There is a, like... As a scientist, is it reasonable to say – I think it is reasonable to say that the average male re- relationship is less emotionally close than the average female-female relationship, as you know, as long as you point to data that shows that that's the case. Which, you know, they tend to, and there's data yeah. here. I'm obviously skipping over it to get to what they're actually studying. But So in your, saying in your introduction, you know, males – how the, there is value for males in having a male-female relationship because we found male-female relationships involve more emotional closeness, so it allows them to get more emotional closeness than they would be getting from their male-male relationships. Yeah, is reasonable and putting that in shorthand, saying as access they have done to intimacy, <laughs> access to intimacy. I mean, it could easily be misrepresented as or just represented as we've just done, but at the same time. Is it really wrong? That's an interesting question. I mean, it would question. be wrong if you were saying they sh- – like if yeah. you were writing an it's opinion normativity saying – Yeah. It, and this yeah, is why the evolutionary psychology articles in this, essentially, by continually reaffirming that human yeah, society that hasn't surpassed it. the sex roles of the evolutionary environment, mm. it implies heavily in these articles – that they shouldn't, as mm. far as I can tell. As far as I can tell, what um, what's a face Bletcher Rushek has put is usually, you know, women have cross-sex relationships with men for protection, men have them for sex. And the reason I'm doing these studies is because although they still fall into a lot of stereotypes and maybe they sort of affirm them, to say intimacy and activities is better than to say it's good that men find intimacy somewhere. Yes, maybe it would be good if male-male friendships led to that, but I prefer that to the men are only friends with women for sex science. Science, you know, yeah. that's being said in science. So, having guess, said about those things... Sorry, uh, one more thing, I guess, is, like, from the, the kind of research that I deal with a lot with, you know, group conflict, we're used to finding research that f- comes up with a model of how things are in a bad situation and then proposes means of solving them by, you know, like it turns out that uh, giving group categories, giving people group categories lends the leads them to derogate the out group and promote the in group. Okay. We can demonstrate this experimentally, but then we try and work out how it happens and then try and find a way of changing that. Whereas the emphasis of a lot of these kind of gender role studies is just look this happens it yeah. is a fact it is a truth almost and your silence on and your silence on coming up with ways of altering that is a tacit yeah. it's a tacit affirmation yeah like how of the how do you how do you encourage male male relationships to be more intimate if you are making the value judgment that that is a good thing that well, relationships yeah, and we are, are, which we are, are both doing that i think aren't we yeah. right now but maybe well i don't know 
I think most people would probably agree with that who are right thinking. You know, that's a bit. Okay. <laughs> exactly. so that's a slightly like bad way of arguing. I think most people would be positive towards that, you know, because and then, yeah, otherwise you went with such binary of the men only talk about sport. And that's yeah. good because they can repress all of their feelings and then maybe talk about it to a woman who they still want to sleep with. Like that's not a world that we want to live in. Mm. Most of us, I would argue. So if there's a way from that world, which I don't think is the world we do live in, but that's still there. Yeah. Well, I think Halatzis well, and Christakis have some good have got some ideas on this. So, okay, well, let's hear him. Sorry, that was a no, big no. I think you know we're talking about things that clearly personally are personally important so it's mm. understandable we have feelings on the science that concerns them as well so instead of seeing attraction and sexuality as the hidden agenda um at least for stereotypical men halatsis and christakis see it as an issue that friends can work through together indeed they refer to it as a challenge the ultimate challenge uh, <laughs> first you've got to get past the anti-penultimate and penultimate challenges for example indeed attraction can be an intense challenge in a cross-sex friendship even when there is no sexual tension between friends because of the dominant sociocultural perception that views any close cross-sex relationship as reflecting manifest or latent sexual slash romantic attraction. And in our lives, people seem to apply this to same-sex relationships too. Uh, mm. Oh wait, no, that's us. We do that to ourselves. Okay, anyway. But what about the actual existence of attraction, either unilaterally or mutually? Although they argue that a friendship that starts that way isn't really a friendship, they do note that sometimes the close emotional relationship can lead to attraction and this can be a threat to the friendship. So some people solve the problem by breaking up as friends or by changing from a friendship to a romantic relationship or the third choice becoming so-called friends with benefits, a term they attribute to Bisson and Levine 2009. However, wow. <laughs> they also call it... I like that has a reference. <laughs> oh, well, this gets better. They also call it by a term I've never heard before that hasn't caught on but really think should, flovers. came up with flovers which is a very west country word i reckon that's brilliant like a ringed flubber a ringed flubber is when you get married as a result wait a what flubber a ringed flubber like a ringed flubber (laughs) it's a kind of bird i'm aware of the ringed flubber but (laughs) the ringed flubber that's so good oh great so that um, film that that film with was it with justin timberlake and someone else friends with benefits yeah is it should I, co- it should have just been called flubbers i agree i totally agree it's, it's a better to flubber. um so yeah. there's evidence of asymmetry when it comes to flubbers uh 90 of people with romantic attraction to their friends also had sexual attraction but only 45% of people with sexual attraction had romantic attraction. So obviously Venn diagrams are difficult in audio form. But basically, the romantic attraction is contained within a larger area of sexual attraction and is almost completely contained. And the sexual attraction is the larger concern or the greater challenge, as they put it, for friends. So there's clear evidence that there's sometimes attraction within friendship, though reports differ on how much and how frequently it leads to a real desire for a sexual relationship, let alone an actualization of those feelings. Man, I sure know how to make things sound sexy. Um, so the Actualization of feelings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the surveys that have been done come up with different numbers, but some cross-sex friends do engage in sexual activity. But there are problems with defining cross-sex friends. So Halatsis and Christakis suggest that the title of close cross-sex <clears throat> friend 
for when it's happening in an originally platonic relationship because the rest might fall into the Trojan horse or acquaintance category. Obviously, there's <laughs> evidence that men tend to seek this more. But the trait that tends to predict this better, however, is not gender, but conventionality. The more mm. conventional one is, the more one sees sex as a challenge or a risk. So they suggest that the diversity in findings suggests that the process of managing attraction is complex and contains the idiosyncratic way the friendship is viewed, the perceived quality of the relationship and sexual scripts. And part of the issue with sexual scripts is that there's apparently no common cultural script for attraction within cross-sex friendships. Another um, problem is that there's no such thing yet as a sexual script spell checker. No, uh, there's no screenwriting prize. And if you scripts. if you find a lot of little wiggly red lines underneath everything, you should probably consult a medical professional. <laughs> uh, so supposedly, 67%... You look like you're trying to have sex. Would you like some help? It's like, don't get paperclips involved in sex. That's not a good idea. <laughs> it's not a good idea. As far know. as I know. Unless uh, you're so, into that. Let's not, because someone will be. Supposedly, 67% of people who have incorporated sexual activity into a cross-sex friendship said it had enhanced the quality of their friendship. But <laughs> almost all the percentages in this article are contradicted by another study. So I'm staying away from most of them. Anyway, it could be argued that by definition, successful incorporation requires that it was beneficial. For the most part, they say, it is viewed as a threat because of consequences and conflict. And the key reason for this is that sexual relationships have cultural rules in general that simply clash with those of friendship. Uh, mm. Commitment, exclusivity, possessiveness are these rules, apparently, which I think sometimes do find their way into friendship. But mm. anyway, there's a lot of studies that can give us some information and they want to study it as comprehensively as they can. So they did one qualitative and then one quantitative study. So you've got some words and some numbers. So. Mm. The qualitative study involved interviews, and these interviews sampled looking for two things, the maximum variability and the typical case, which are two good aspirations if you can manage to get both. So this involved getting participants of all ages, or at least a 30-year range, because apparently it's the last 30 years in Greece where the study was done that the social attitudes have changed considerably. Basically, they asked them everything related to the topic about their cross-sex friends, how the social context affected it, if there was an obvious or latent sexual attraction, how they um, faced it, what the consequences were. And they did this either in the participants' homes or in the participants' offices, which is weird. I'm not sure, invited to talk about the subject of potential sexual attraction to cross-sex friends, that I'd pop up at work and be like, can I borrow a meeting room? I know we only have two meeting rooms, one of which is essentially like an icebox for a fridge. But, you know, these Greek researchers want to ask me questions about sexual tension. And it's for science. Anyway, they varied the interviews by gender to reduce bias, which is good. So they categorised the common themes in the data uh, based both on the literature review that they've already done and I've described and emergent trends in the evidence. So they found that attraction can emerge at any stage in a friendship um, and for various reasons. Intimacy, social pressure and so-called contingency coupled with emotional vulnerability. Uh, the interviewer more helpfully describes that last one as a moment of weakness when one is disappointed, sensitive, etc. And disappointment mm. is definitely the emotion that leaves me most vulnerable to sleeping with my friends. <laughs> the interviewees almost all describe sexual attraction as likely to devalue the friendship. It's actually interesting that what emerges mm. is a really strong negativity towards romance compared with friendship. Friendship is described as ethical, real, sincere, spontaneous, unjealous whereas romance requires constantly putting on a show to keep the other's attention and maintaining likability. That's really so, interesting. It's, it seems like, I feel like one explanation for that could be kind of what you touched on before, the, the level of kind of social pressures surrounding romance. 
and cultural yeah. pressures around it are so much higher than the social pressures surrounding friendship. Yeah. Like friendship is almost even more so. Sorry, you go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say friendship is almost almost unequivocally considered good except in like extreme cases of like cross group differences or whatever. And yeah. there's very little kind of rules about what a friendship can and can't include other than yeah. this apparently quite strong one that it shouldn't involve sex yeah um whereas yeah you're right and i th- was going to say perhaps especially in greece where you know if the elder relatives of greek people i know are to be believed it's all about being pressured into being married um mm. you know so there's an even stronger narrow pressure on that uh, yeah. as far as i'm aware that's anecdotal but uh you know mediterranean people you can't be racist against mediterraneans can you anyway so uh, what management <laughs> techniques do people use so the first one is described as mental or communicative and it basically doing anything intra or interpersonal to preserve the friendship from so-called adulteration um seeing sexual attraction as a temptation to be resisted uh, the second idea is to go through a romantic phase uh, to discharge tension but then return to being friends. Oh, yeah. You've kind of got it out for your system. And then finally, integration, but with friendship as the dominant aspect. Whereas I suppose for a successful long-term romantic relationship, friendship is integrated, but the romantic aspect is dominant. So that's what the qualitative research found. So they used these patterns of management to look at some quantitative data. They created a questionnaire that had some open sections to fill in, you know, your completely free answers and some yes-no questions, as well as some suggested outcomes from sexual behaviour within a friendship. So the big question that Nora from posed, 75% believed it was possible for men and women to be friends, significantly more women than men. Uh, there weren't age differences, despite the expected cultural differences between the generations. And the reasons given were friendship is based on personality. Uh, if you rule out sex, friendships are still worthwhile. Uh, you don't have the same competition and jealousy as with a same sex friend. And they have a lot to offer to broaden and grow the self. Reasons why they were considered impossible were they will always be sexualized and men and women are too different, uh, which is interesting. That even though it was only about 25 percent who believe those ideas, I feel like those ideas are more common in culture than the latter or the former even. So half of those with cross sex friends had experienced attractions and half of them had expressed it to that friend. Following those instances, in 16 percent of cases, the friendship was terminated, as it might lead to the birth of John Connor. Twenty two percent led to a romantic relationship which is classed as a friendship termination as well. Then in 18% of cases, there was no reciprocation, but the friendship continued. In 21% of cases, uh, discharge, a brief sexual or romantic relationship occurred, but then it went back to a platonic relationship. And in 25% of cases, the sexual attraction was integrated, i.e. friends with benefits. Those percentages may well not add up. I had to calculate some of these percentages and I rounded them quite harshly because they didn't calculate total percentages for the cases where the friendship survived for some reason anyway lots <laughs> right. of people believe that cross-sex friendships are possible and have had them and sex is a significant topic within these friendships as half of people said they'd experienced attraction admittedly this means that half didn't which in a way surprises me with my stereotypes still in my brain um hmm. men were higher than women in having sexual attraction or sexual expression and this could be for a number of suggested reasons men being socially accepted as more forthright and dominant in that field Men are less adept at being verbally and physically intimate and thus confuse it with sexual feelings. Or men tend to view the world as a whole in sexual terms. Well, some bits of it are smoking hot. Um, most <laughs> Freud. friendships... Right, 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 right. Most friendships survive expressions of attraction. 
and yet half of people do not disclose their attraction. However, this is most frequently by integration or discharge rather than coming up with a purely platonic solution. And as they point out, although starting a romantic relationship means the friendship has ended by the definition of those inside the friendship, it's still the continuation of a positive social relationship. But essentially, their conclusion is that cross-sex friendships are challenging, you know, in the purely heteronormative world in which we all live. Uh, I guess we could redo it with target sex sex friends. Um, they basically point out that once attraction is in the open, most people seem ready to and capable of dealing with it. Uh, they point out the main limitation is that they did not categorise the friendships, which is an issue. Uh, they only ever studied one member of a friendship at a time, and that friend might have a very different perspective. And they mm -hmm. do point out that they've assumed heterosexuality and it was wrong of them to do that, but they did. So basically, you know, this study, it's rain and shine. You will be attracted to a friend, but your friendship will almost certainly survive. Hmm. So it's reasonably, reasonably positive. Ben, your last study has nothing to do with anything, but talk about it anyway. Well, it's about friends. Uh, and I can't potentially... believe we through this whole episode without singing, a, 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 you know, a song that talks about how you weren't expecting life to be this way <laughs> until the second verse yeah when it uh, says your mother said there would be days like these yeah well you just didn't listen to your mother enough is the conclusion from that song anyway uh, well yeah i mean it's not so on the one hand it's not a study on the other hand it's also not psychology um, get out <laughs> And it's not necessarily about friends or sex, but on the on the other hand, it it can be about friends and is, and can be about sex and is. Okay. But and what there is, it is if it's not psychology. Well, you'll just have to find out next okay. time. <laughs> no, uh, it, it this is basically just maths, but it is maths about people, which is not an entirely inaccurate reductionist definition of psychology, come to think of it. Yeah, experimental psychology, at least. So, Tim, do you think you have more or less friends than your friends have? I would guess that I have less. You well, would it depends. Be... It depends on where I draw the friend line, basically. <laughs> because... You draw it in some of, odd places. <laughs> well, exactly. I have a lot of friends from across the world who maybe some of them I've only met in person a couple of times, but I still think of them as friends. On the one hand, which I feel like a lot of my friends don't. On the other hand, I feel like I'm less good at being social and like friendly with people. So I'm still would probably say slightly less. Okay. That is, in fact, both uh, anecdotally and mathematically the correct answer. Right. Because... It is statistically likely, highly statistically likely, that your friends will have more friends than you. Me personally? Anyone. Everyone. Okay. And that doesn't Slave. make sense in my brain, but apparently no. it does. So, this, this principle was discovered, in quotes, by a guy called Scott Feld, who wrote an article in 1991 entitled, Why Your Friends Have More Friends Than You Do. And it seems way counterintuitive. But the reason does make sense and is actually quite simple. And I'm going to try and explain it. I'm going to try my best to explain it. I would recommend reading the Feld article if you want to find out more about this. He explains it very clearly. Here we go. So if you take any network of friends, maybe like a college year group, for example, and ask everyone to list all their friends, you would obviously find that some people have lots of friends, some people have not so many. You'd probably expect that overall... 
you'd get kind of a normal distribution of friends. Some people have loads, some people have few, but most people have kind of an average number. That's so far so straightforward. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But that is just representing the number of friends individuals in the network have. And we're not looking at that. We're interested in how many friends their friends have. Friends of friends, if you will. So if you think about the people in the network again, there are a relatively small number of people who have loads of friends. But by that very fact, they are going to appear in a disproportionately large number of other people's friends lists. So, for example, if someone has 50 friends, they're going to show up in all 50 of those people's, those friends lists. By contrast, a social pariah with only five friends is only going to show up in those five friends lists, assuming reciprocity. So this means that the distribution of friends of friends is always going to be skewed towards more popular individuals. So purely mathematically, the average number of your friends' friends is always going to be larger than the average number of your friends. Okay. Because it's just like a, by definition, it's bigger. Yeah. To put it in simple terms, you will always be socially inadequate because of maths. (laughs) I'm not quite sure that's right. I think it's things that sound like they're the same thing, but are actually genuinely different. Yeah. Because of maths, one is bigger because it is two things kind of multiplied by the other so i mean i I i'm going to carry on talking about this like it is stupid but it it is basically just stating a truth but doing it correct using the right wording basically but anyway uh what's great about this principle is that it works for any group environment where common connections are formed between individuals so one example that feld gives i think people you see at the gym will always work out there more than you do. Because mean gym attendance, the mean gym attendance of other gym users is skewed towards people who go to the gym a lot. And then, you know, that kind of works for any communal space with varying attendance. People you see at nightclubs or gigs or orgies are always statistically likely to be more regular clubbers, giggers and orgiasts than you. Uh, I had to look up the word for persons who attend orgies. Sometimes the old internet history just has to take one for the team in the name of science. I'm surprised, you know. You're (laughs) still at Oxford University. Isn't that a thing that happens frequently? Roman-style orgies? Not not that I've noticed. I haven't tripped over any in the street. Well, that's Um, because we were at Corpus and not Christchurch. So, on the subject of sex, as I intimated earlier, this phenomenon also works for sexual partners. As long as you take a network of people who are reasonably physically interconnected, if you like, like, for example, a college year group, you can say with mathematical, reasonable mathematical certainty that the person you are currently having sex with, and indeed anyone you have sex with at college, is statistically likely to have had sex with more people in college than you. Isn't maths great? (laughs) Uh, Yes. Anyway, so far... Is this a warning then, Ben, to be careful of statistics? (laughs) Basically, yeah. But so far, all I've given you is theoretical examples. Uh, So what I like now is if everyone could open wide and prepare the orifice of your choice to receive some delicious data. Uh, So if you're going to study social networks, Tim, where do you think would be a good place to start? Um, on, On Facebook? Yes, correct. And that is exactly what Johan Uganda and colleagues did in, ni- in 2011. They analysed Facebook. All of it. All of it? Wow. All of it. 
I only, I only studied a little bit of it at university. Their network included 721 million people. And as a wow. social, social psychologist, I can tell you that when reading a paper that declares its end value to be 10% of the world's population, it's very, very difficult to focus on the rest of the methodology because of having this playing in your head. <laughs> uh, but I, I and then str- religious priming just kind of messes up all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Ruins the whole thing. I start feeling very safe and immune to pain. Uh, <laughs> except I don't because I'm an atheist. Anyway, uh, with this, no religious priming works on non-religious people, Ben. We discovered that, but not for pain tolerance. Not for pain tolerance. Really? Okay. Yeah, it doesn't. You can show an atheist a picture of the Virgin Mary all you like, and they'll still be angry if you try and cut their leg off. Yeah, whereas Catholics are just like, hey. <laughs> Take it, it's fine. Uh, anyway, uh, with this sexy, sexy sample size, that uh, they found that your Facebook friends list is smaller than your friends' friends list. Your Facebook friends list is smaller than your Facebook friends. That's not true for me. Facebook friends list, ninety-three percent of the time. Wow. That and not just slightly smaller. The average user uh, in two thousand and eleven had 190 friends on their list. The average user's friends had an average of 635 friends. How does that, that even work? I know. I understand. That is how... It's those just, are the same groups. It's a self-contained... But the <laughs> distribution is skewed. I know, it breaks your brain. And that, I mean, if there's anything the study proves, it's that the human brain just doesn't deal well with statistics past a certain level. Um, yeah, just now, give me a T-test and I'll be fine. So maybe one way that you could think about explaining this massively dramatic difference is maybe that it's due to the presence of celebrities on Facebook because they're, they're people who are going to have ex, like exponentially inflated friends lists and so are going to appear much more often throughout the network. But to be honest, I'm not entirely sure that that's how facebook works you know i'm not friends with any celebrities on facebook and i think they tend to have pages rather than like well yeah there's a finite cap on the number of friends you can have at five thousand. okay so that doesn't seem to work however i found that the reason i came across this study was by seeing it a study mentioned on the bps research digest about a very similar version of this analysis done by nathan hodas Hordas and colleagues this year on Twitter. <laughs> Game of Thrones for the win. Uh, so on Twitter. All of Twitter. All of Twitter. That means we were in this study. 460, 476 million tweets, 5.8 million users, 193.3 connections. And that was just on Stephen Fry's account. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was lowest common denominator humor right there. Which is quite rare for us. <laughs> Really? <laughs> oh yes, you're right. Uh, anyway, uh, so in more this likely case... to make a joke about lowest common denominators <laughs> than a lowest common denominator <laughs> joke. Exactly. So um, in this case, they actually tested several different dimensions of like network connections because there's lots of different possible in quotes connections available from a, a Twitter account. So you can look at your followers. You can also look at people who follow you you can look at people you follow and they also looked at activity like level of activity and things like how much your tweets were retweeted and stuff like that but for for now i'm just going to look at the followers and the followees and that kind of stuff 
Uh, first of all, they confirmed that people you follow on Twitter typically follow 10 times more people than you do. And your own, your own followers themselves have around 20 times more followers than you do. More depressingly, people who follow you are likely to be followed around 10 times more than you. And people that you follow are 10,000 times more followed than you are. Well, that makes sense. That last that's, one. That's the celebrity effect. If you, if you take out celebrity accounts, it drops to people you follow are only, on average, 10 times more followed than you are. And it's, it's all just distributions and maths. Uh, and so basically, there you have it, further proving that statistics is just using maths to provide proof for things that are obviously untrue. Here we see that some people being popular, popular makes everybody socially inadequate. Good job, science. You broke society again. I feel sad now. I have isn't, followers on Twitter. <laughs> isn't that cool, though? I it, like it. If you take away all the slightly silly implications, like mis misrepresenting it, it's such a cool phenomena and it's i think basically it's entirely due to the inadequacy of our language yeah like yeah. we just it's, we just don't our brains don't realize what like those two things must be the same thing right yeah. and then it's like the probabilities must work out about even right yeah no. No. No, no no anyway i thought that was really cool and it, i mean it isn't psychology but it does relate to friends and i thought that was fun yeah Right, we're back. Um, if we're back. Oh. Ben decided to eat a snake because he wants to make Indiana Jones feel better, but his only method for doing so is not with, like, fire or a gun. Or... How do you kill a snake? I feel like I would never be able to hit a snake with a gun. I think do shotguns only... work on snakes? Yeah, absolutely. I think shotguns work on a lot of things, Tim. <laughs> I suppose if they work video on games, they must be anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Um, yeah, well, um, if you would like to talk to us about the best way we can help Indiana Jones with his problems, we might even be able to use psychology. Um, you know, because his relationship with his father never existed. <laughs> it's not. It's not as bad as it could have been. There are good bits. Well, yeah, I'm but... so positive about everything. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, you can contact the show like. Uh, on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash psychomedia. You can email us at um, psychomediapodcast at email.com. Oh, um, you can uh, Twitter at Team Psychomedia. Ah, hang on. Oh, no, you've got to do an important one now. <laughs> Where's the moment? Ah, and you should definitely snakes. head over Why to... did it have to be snakes? I um, had it up to here with these... Mother Freuding snakes on this Mother Freuding podcast. Um, yeah, head over to psychomedia.wordpress.com uh, for the show notes, which will include things and stuff of a visual and audio nature. Maybe. Things like a trailer and links for Rogue Legacy and pictures of Tim with no hair. I feel we were supposed to talk about sexual tension. Oh, yeah, well, we can do that now. We should probably say bye bye. Bye bye, outro. Now, onto the outro. Um, yeah. So that study, what we just talked about, where like it's any number of connections 
uh, any type of connection you can apply this rule to that the people with whom you have the connection will have more of that connection with other people than you do kind yeah. of thing yeah that definitely works with sexual tension i don't know why sexual tension came up was it because the other study was about sexual yeah tension? no sexual no tension. i mean i mean it's, there's always a subtext of unresolved sexual tension yeah. <laughs> and, and there were so many stories i was catching up alexandra with where i'm like now this story makes it look like there's a whole load of unresolved sexual tension but it's not like that it's not like <laughs> that i promise you because <laughs> it all got resolved um but uh, <laughs> um yeah yeah i was talking about yeah. how platonic relationships can transcend sexual tension uh between cross-sex friends or i suppose sure. like cross-attracted friends Mm. But, you know, as we learned, friends research, very heteronormative. So what what this suggests is Just that like the show. A combining, mm, like, mashing those two together up in study one slash study two, we get the fact, the fact, mathematical certainty. Mathematical certainty. That. Breaking research. <laughs> yeah. Psychomedia's first published study. That. People who you are sexually attracted to, no, hang on, in any given network where there is sexual tension between members of the network, uh, members of the network, people with whom you have sexual tension will always have sexual tension with more people than you, assuming that you are not sexual monogamous in your sexual assuming that everyone is not monogamous in their sexual tension which i don't think is the case no i suppose because not. the people who are highly sexually tensile tensile that is the wrong word <laughs> it is the right word from now on highly sexually tensile people will occur in more places in the web of sexual tendons than tendons non-sexually tense people that's how it'll work that's how it works yeah it's kind of disappointing Fact. to your ego just like the whole your friends have more friends than you think it's just like oh <laughs> yeah i wanted to be that kind of like unfulfilled adonis person <laughs> well you it, it's it is possible that you could be but statistically it's unlikely yeah statistics is the take-home message yeah uh, that's what all our listeners should think they should think about all of the unresolved sexual tension in their life and then know that all of those people have more than them and that they should feel sad yeah. so in a way no they should feel good that's like the inverse the, the right, friends no, cause, cause, feel that the maths but works they, the same right yeah but all maths of the is, people you have with resolved maths. sexual tension with have more resolved sexual tension than you yeah everyone is more frustrated and Kind of also less frustrated leg crossing mouth grindingly angry and thwarted in their life than you are fact fact <laughs> good <laughs> right uh yeah so the listeners aren't going to be satisfied with that they wanted something much more slashy i guess they're going to be really frustrated <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> Ah, I can't make it stop. <laughs> time time loop. Oh, I, I just wanted one chance to... Like, you know, we're here at the end of a really rambly podcast. I still haven't had a chance to use this button. Hand on heart, we all know this is not making the edit. Speaking of unresolved sexual tension, <laughs> I feel...
is a podcast which bucks the trend. I think it is one. It is one of the pillars of podcasting, as mentioned at the beginning. That. Do you not feel that there's a bit of like if you're going to ship any two of the characters, like Chris slash Andy? I don't even feel that's the that's the crazy thing. I don't even feel that there is any between Chris and either of them. I, I really genuinely don't. Who do you ship? I mean, answer me this. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, that probably Ollie Martin. Right, because of course, obviously, I have to say Helen Martin, because that's canon! (laughs) 